Homer, I'm ruined. I know. You know, at times like these, I... I used to turn to the Bible and find solace, but... even the good book can't help me now. Why not? I sold it to you for seven cents. Oh. Hello, and welcome to The Simpsons Countdown, the podcast in which we go back to the beginning and watch all of The Simpsons to trace the creative evolution of the series and count down, finding the exact moment in which it began its downhill journey into irrelevance. I'm Eric's Antoine, and this week I'm joined by Troy Anderson of AndersonVision.com. We'll be discussing When Flanders Failed, which originally aired on October 3rd, 1991. It was written by John Vitti and directed by Jim Reardon. In this episode, Homer makes a wish for Ned Flanders' new left-handed store to go out of business. The wish comes true, and the Flanders clan find themselves out of a home and living in their car. Homer naturally feels guilty. So he helps the store flourish by telling all of Springfield's left-handed citizens to patronize it, ending on a heartwarming note of camaraderie and friendship. It's a leftover from season two, and it shows, as it is still operating on earnest, sentimental levels, despite having quite a few fun visual and verbal gags. In any case, Troy and I are about to break it down. So, without further ado, here we go. Schadenfreude is. No, I do not know what Schadenfreude is. Please tell me because I'm dying to know. It's a German term for shameful joy, taking pleasure in the suffering of others. Oh, come on, Lisa. I'm just glad to see him fall flat on his butt. He's usually all happy and comfortable and surrounded by loved ones, and it makes me feel... What's the opposite of that shameful joy thing of yours? Sour grapes. Boy, those Germans have a word for everything. Yeah, so here we are. Welcome back, uh, Troy. It's uh, it's good to have you. Here we are at the third season. Oh, yes. Uh, when yeah. they started turning to our ratings powerhouse, and when 25 years later, people will remember as the good old days, when honestly, eh, those days came a little bit later. So in your opinion, this is still not quite, we're not quite there yet. We're not this quite is the first season yet. where they're about to have their identity. It's not when they're at their peak. I'll follow you there. It's they're not at their peak, but I would say that this is the first season where you have a sort of like a consistent quality. It's like they went in with a sort of game plan, with a sort of vision. It starts to feel a little more cohesive in this season. They start to take a few more risks with the storytelling. They start to do slightly more ambitious things. And so here you have an episode. You know, it's a little inexplicable. I remember this episode from watching it back in the day as just being the one about the left-handed store, right? Yeah. And so revisiting it now, it has a couple of elements that are that are weird, that are that are like interesting. You know, and the the first of the things that I find unusual about the episode is that Homer's a real shit. Oh yeah. And I think this is the first episode where he's really a shit. Cuz there are others where well-intentioned, you know, and and he fucks up and he he ends up uh doing things wrong or whatever but in this one he is malicious truly truly a shit the villain of the episode 
And I, I like that they took that concept and rolled with it. I mean, I do like that. I don't like Homer as a bad guy. I don't think Homer works as a bad guy because, again, when he started, it was a really lame attempt at making a Walter Matthau-style dad. Then he was right. a prick for the first five years, and then eventually he's turned into uh, the uh, mentally disabled uh, boomer that we all love. He has a redemption arc in this episode, right? Yeah. I mean, they, they, it, it builds to the maudlin ending that it has and all of that. But, but the thing about it is that it, it's, it's weird to take the protagonist, or to take the, to take the character and make him so unlikable, you know, like uh, up front. It's a, that's what I mean. It's, it's, a, it's a weird risk for the, for the show to take, I think. The way he behaves at that barbecue, I think we all know somebody like yeah. that, right? We, yeah. we all we all have that experience, and this is still the show trying to be grounded and all of that. But since the very first episode of the of the series, they tried to build up this sort of rivalry between Homer and and Flanders. Yeah, they could never really find a way to make it work properly. Yeah. Because I, I, it was always kind of weird because it's it's a rivalry, but it's kind of a one-sided rivalry because Flanders is just a nice guy. You know, he he's well off, yeah, but he's basically a nice guy, and Homer's just envious of him and he's a shit. Well, and, a lot of the problem was was that they were trying to rebel against the goody-goody like dad next door types, Bill Cosby at the time. Uh, Patrick Duffy, I'm trying to think some other types who they were rebelling against, like the image, because you know they're bad. They got Fox attitude. But basically, okay, so let, so let's let's deconstruct this episode. It it revolves around the idea of a left-handed store in a mall, a store yeah. that specializes in left-handed products, and it's something that we don't really think about. That it's true, right? That things are not designed for left-handed people. But that, but here's the thing, like I guess, I guess it's true that there's a there's a low percentage of left-handed people in the world. Like, it's not common, right, to be left-handed. It never really occurred to like it's. I remember when I when I watched it, it just didn't occur to me, right? Whether it's the the guy with the ledger or you know the the, the corkscrew or and I'm going corkscrew. But wait a minute, what you know? I mean, the really a, a corkscrew needs to be left-handed. I that's the part that I didn't get because I mean a corkscrew. You know, they came up with the idea, don't you? Oh, no idea. The year before, George Myers, one of the head writers, he had a friend who opened up the Leftorium, uh, an actual store. I think it's in, not the LA Galleria, but it's in the mall they shot Jackie Brown in. And it went out in about nine months. And this was early 90s. And so he was telling all the writers, like, you can't believe the stupidest idea my friend had. And they're like, uh, we need to put that on the show. And they had to f figure out who would actually have that business. And that's how they came on with a Ned having it. That's interesting. I didn't even realize that there was such a such a place. And so to build an entire episode around that concept, I, I guess it's it's a funny idea. Yeah. And it's them trying to flesh out Flanders a little bit. I think this is this this is the first episode. Well, it isn't because there there were a couple. There was an episode in the second season where. Um, yeah, the War of the Simpsons. There's a little bit there, you know. The, yeah. there, there's also the episode, the the golfing rivalry. You know, yeah. there are little bits and pieces here and there, but this is the first one that really, really focuses on him, and tries to flesh him out as a character, and guess you know makes him kind of a likable character. Well, so the that, episodes you're talking about from season yeah. two, this yeah. was originally supposed to be a season two episode. 
Oh, really? Okay. So it's like, yeah, late, the late Korean production. botched, no, the Koreans botched animation so bad that Fox was like, we're not airing this. So they had to send it back and they had work in America with some Cal Art students and redesigned the whole episode. By the time they did it, it became a season three episode. And I guess it would have fit in. It would have fit in the sort of arc that they were crafting, the, the rivalry arc. It would have fit in more there, I suppose. Yeah. You know, because there's like thematically, it would have been of a piece with those other episodes and here it just feels a little bit out of left field and it's like early in the season too it's like right at the you know right at the top and it almost feels like filler because it's following you know you you have the huge season premiere with michael jackson and then you know you have that uh the lisa simpson political episode and then you have this one you know it it just it feels like a just sort of a throwaway episode well, in a way, it was filler, and the people who like try to go back in time and try to praise it as being like this ultimate great episode, they ignore the fact that it was a botched job from season two that took an extra three to six months to get fixed, and they deleted so much to get the runtime right that the whole Bart Simpson uh, kung fu plot makes no sense. Yes, well, that that comes kind of out of nowhere. It's yeah. it's just it's sort of just there. It's funny. It provides some ga- some fun gags. Well, now, it's also one of the last episodes about, you know, the emotional appeal, like a very special episode, like, you know, a, uh, Citizen X in town tries for his dream and loses it all. And now it's up to Homer and the fellows to come together and bring them back their business and all this shit. It's one of the last Simpsons episodes, because by the time we get to season four, the whole tra- the whole old sitcom trappings where a lot of these guys got started. Yeah, that stuff's gone. This is one of the last gas of that old sitcom style still being the show. Because by the end of this season, it's gone. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it, because I, I was I, I wanted to focus on this. Does have kind of a maudlin ending? Yeah. Right. And whatever, I guess it works for the episode, but it's what they build to. It's what they construct to. But you're right. You know, season one and season two, you've got tons of this stuff. You know, you've you've got tons of the whole smiles through tears thing. And you're right that it starts to get filtered out little by little, where at least they, they get it to a point where you'll have bits and pieces of it, but it'll be more organic or it'll just be more like interspersed throughout the episodes. We'll see in this season, they do get occasionally sentimental, like in the Krusty episode with his dad or, you know, there's there's even, you know, there's obviously some sweet moments in the in the Michael Jackson episode. There's... There are sweet moments in the in the flashback episode. There's some sweetness there, but I think they get to a to a place where it starts to feel more organic, and they really focus more on making the gags land, on keeping it a funny show, and avoiding the whole maudlin sentimentality that tended to bog down a lot of the episodes in the first two seasons. So much of uh, the Simpsons depends on the writer. And John Vitti, the guy who wrote this, he's not one of my favorite writers for The Simpsons, but like I think he did stronger work on King of the Hill. But that's because he's one of those guys who almost depends on that sitcom format. You, when you say that, you mean the whole formula, right? The, yeah, the whole formula. He the needs, structure of a traditional sitcom. Oh, he needs it bad. He was one of the big 11 writers in those first three seasons. And then by Mr. Plow, he was getting you know, pushed over to producing other roles and everything. He'd end up on The Critic, Larry Sanders Show, King of the Hill. He even wrote a few Office episodes. In terms of the 11 writers that were in that main first season, he's probably number 10. In the first three years of The Simpsons, you essentially had the same team of writers. And they 
got basically overhauled by season four, right? So that's yeah. why the process took this long, I guess, for, for it to really hit its peak the way you're suggesting. Yeah, that, because you know, yeah. when they start bringing in, I'm trying to think who you really can pin on it. But I mean, like, there, you got people like John Swartzwelder, who's always been the constant. I think John Swartzwelder is still writing episodes. He's always doing something. So like, he's, never to- he's never totally left. Well, that's part of the reason why a lot of people think he's not real. And that's a whole other argument. Okay, well, now you got to tell me about that because I, I had no, I didn't know anything about uh, people thinking that John Schwartzwelder is not a real person. Well, John Schwartzwelder, it's been kind of well known for a while that he won't do. There's one picture of him from like the early 80s in a writing group. He will go out of his way not to be recorded or seen on camera, on film. Uh, he even faked. He had a friend fake for him because they were going to force him because uh, Matt Granny wanted to get him on a one of the commentaries. So he tricked Matt Groening into trying to get him on a thing. And he goes, hi, I'm John's friend, you know? So he, he didn't participate in any of the commentaries in the first, no. uh, yeah, I didn't know that. Like that's, that's news to me. I, I don't, but you don't buy that, right? I mean, he is a real guy. He's just reclusive. I know he's real because the theory for the longest time, like early Simpsons fan stuff was that he was just an assumed name. There was only 10 writers. And when they all had to share a script, but they didn't want to share credit. They discredited him, which was bullshit because, I mean, he worked on Saturday Night Live. He worked on The Simpsons forever. Uh, he, he wrote the lyrics to Spider Pig for The Simpsons movie. So he actually stopped writing full episodes in uh, whatever season, uh, year. Let me see. He stopped writing full episodes in 2003. Still consults. Okay. So, like, he'll, he'll contribute to scripts, but there hasn't been, like, a full John Schwartzwell script but this episode was written by John Vitti, right? Yeah. Who's, who's, as you said, he's, uh, he's number 10 out of the 11 writers. And look, I, I think it's, I don't think it's a bad episode at all. And I don't think it's badly written. I, I do think it's, it's essentially, I mean, it has funny gags. It, it has its moments. I think it's trying to flesh out uh, the character of Ned Flanders. And it does it in a way that's, I mean, it makes him sympathetic, but I guess that the whole plot is built around a rather ridiculous concept. Well, the whole, the whole problem was is that they were trying to make a foil. They wanted a foil, but when you start realizing maybe Ned's not the worst guy, then you kind of get all shaky, like, uh, how do we do this? Right, exactly. I mean, the, that's the thing. That, that's what, what, what I was saying before, where, where they present him, because in the when he first appears in the Christmas episode... Very minor character. It's just he's putting up the lights and, you know, ostentatious. And he's just got one line and whatever. So you could go anywhere with that character at that point because, you know, he puts up the lights. He's obviously more more prosperous than Homer, the whole contrast thing. And then a few episodes later, there's the whole camping thing where he shows up with the big, you know, the, the huge motorhome with, and again, very ostentatious. But... Anytime they actually focus on the character, they made him nice, you know? And if they'd made him obnoxious, then yeah, then you have a foil. Then you have somebody that, you know, he's successful, but he's like the guy you love to hate or whatever. Or then he's an appropriate foil. But I think when they decided to make the character, as you said, a, a sort of parody of, um, or sort of take on on like Patrick Duffy or Bill Cosby or whatever, when they yeah. just made him, he's just a nice guy. He's the clean cut, 
nice guy. And this is early, because then eventually they found ways to use Ned Flanders appropriately and in a very funny way, you know, take advantage of a lot of the quirks and they start going into the whole religious thing. And so that that was something that they could really, really play on and come up with some really funny ideas. Yeah. Keeping him a nice guy, but, you know, there's this stuff under there that you can really exploit for, for comedy. Like, I'm trying to think who wrote Hurricane Nettie, you know, the hurricane episode, uh, Steve Young. That was a okay. season eight episode. That was the first time I thought they really understood him because showing his parents as, you know, beatniks, hippies and everything. I mean, him as a little kid, you've got the idea of why he became the way he is because he's rebelling by being the most straight-laced person possible. Right. Yeah, there's there's a little bit of that there. I mean, it's the, there's, it's the whole concept of if you're if the parents are bohemian, then you will rebel against them by becoming a straight arrow, right? Yeah. And you know, there's they're they're sort of playing a little bit on the whole. I mean, that like, you know, like in, in Family Ties, that was the whole concept, right? That uh, the the children of boomers were going to be yuppies. You know, Alex P. Keaton is a hardcore Republican. And his parents are hippies, right, who protested the Vietnam War and all that stuff. And so, you know, they, they, they were, you know, flower children or whatever. And that concept, I mean, I guess it's a little bit of a cliche or it's a bit of a forced concept. Uh, but I don't know, like, what do you think of that concept? Of like the, the idea, the, the central idea of family ties, which uh, plays a little bit into the whole Ned Flanders thing in a way. It's kind of dumb, but at the same time, like, I don't even think, like, you can't even use Alex P. Keaton mold for Ned. Because Ned is repressed. This episode shows that he's spent 20 plus years as a pharmaceutical sales rep. Because you also got to remember, he's an elderly, I want to say elderly, but much older than Homer and Marge. Wait a minute. So let me stop you there for a minute. I never thought about that. Is that, yeah. that I I never, I, I assumed he was about the same age as, uh, as... As, well, actually, no, it wouldn't make sense, right? Because then, like, right, if his parents are beatniks, then that means that he would have been a kid in the 50s. Yeah. Because Homer and Marge are in their mid-30s. Yeah. The standard, mid-30s. In season one, in the, the episode about, you know, Marge's birthday, she's turning 34. 34, that's right. Yeah, yeah. she's 34. Yeah. And Homer's just a year older, so Homer's like 35. Yeah. I know they're going to eventually retcon it so that... I mean, I haven't gotten to these episodes yet, and we're years away. But yeah, but um, but I know they eventually retcon it so that Homer's actually a kid in the '90s, I guess, or in the '80s. I mean, well, he's a college student, teenager in the '90s. Right, a teenager in the '90s. But yeah, because I mean, they have to keep it consistent. If Homer Homer's younger than I am now, right? So, and I was a teenager in the '90s. So, there's certain things that they can't reconcile, right? Because yeah. at this point, if if you were going to keep the whole thing, and if you were going to keep the Skinner's a a war veteran at this point he'd be like he wouldn't be a vietnam vet anymore i mean no. it just wouldn't there's no way it, it just doesn't make sense anymore well that's what marvel uh, comics so. runs in trouble with with the punisher because vietnam is such a big part of the character they still have him as a vietnam vet while they've a aged down everyone else well that's okay so that's interesting because i like i hadn't thought of that but you're right i mean it's a huge part of the of like the in the punisher comics are there still are there new ones? Are they still publishing them? Like are they making new ones? Uh, every once in a while, uh, they'll start a new run, and then it doesn't sell enough. So they usually get about twelve year twelve issues or more. And they've never retconned it because in the in the Netflix show of the Punisher, no. 
Okay, because there they did. I mean, he's a what is it? The Gulf War? I don't remember anymore. It's like a, a, it's it's the Gulf War, right? Or or something, right? He that or you know, war in Afghanistan or whatever. He's a veteran of that, but he's not a Vietnam vet, right? Yeah, they have not. So. Uh, Garth Ennis refused to say he was anything but a Vietnam vet. I guess the only thing you can do is turn it into a period piece. I guess. Yeah, you almost have that, to. Yeah, you you don't have a choice. And but with the Simpsons, they never really have. They've they've always sort of. They've allowed the show to continue commenting on culture and they've allowed the show to sort of, you know, become appropriate to its era and the characters have to adjust to that new era. And it, it's a tricky thing to do. And I think that, um, uh, but little, you know, little details like, I mean, if you're telling me that there's still, that even now, uh, Ned Flanders' parents are still beatniks yeah. And, you know, Skinner's a Vietnam vet. And I was like, I wonder how that works. Because if that were true, I mean, you know, Skinner would have to be... Older than the Chalmers. Yeah, exactly. He'd be, well, he'd be what, in his 70s at this point. But your your comment about Ned Flanders being... Yeah, it had I mean, not they... occurred to me, though, that he's older than, than Homer and Marge. But you're right. The, he's at least a little older than them, yeah. All right, so back to this episode. So the, the Kung Fu teacher is not George Takei. No, it's Hank Azaria. It's Hank Azaria doing basically a George Takei riff. Yeah. Because the first time that that character appeared, the character of Akira, who was the waiter in the in the Blowfish episode. Yeah. And that time it was George Takei, but then eventually they, you know, maybe they couldn't get him back or something. And so yeah. they just have Hank Azaria imitate George Takei. Why do you think they insert this subplot about the, the karate school? As far as I know, from because I'm an animation nerd, out when the episode was delivered first and was botched for season two, this was the part of the episode that suffered the most. So they literally trimmed around what they couldn't correct in post, and then they just left it because they're like, it hit running time. Eh, it makes sense. Not saying it was good, it just right. I mean, I think it's just because you know, um, the Simpsons has the complex structure of having like the A story and the B story, which is not something yeah. that's very that's very common in sitcoms. Um, uh, at least, you know, formulaic sitcoms that, uh, at least of the period, were a lot more straightforward, where you just had sort of one central plot and that was it. Uh, the Simpsons is a, is a comedy series that f the innovation, I guess, of the time was it had more complex plotting. So you could have multiple storylines going on in an episode, which is usually the purview of like an hour long drama or something, right? Where you have like the A story, the B story and whatever. And that's how the Simpsons uh, usually operated. And they tended to do it in different ways. And, I, and the, the way that it usually worked in the Simpsons is by having like certain things happen in act one. It's almost like its own self-contained little story that sets up the rest of the episode. Right. Yeah. Which I always thought was interesting that they did that because that's not something that was common for sitcoms at the time to do that. No. Right. And and even for storytelling, like in general, you you normally in your first act you set up your story, but here it's like the first act can be its own little story, and then you you launch into something else, right? Entirely, and that and that that's always been an interesting feature of The Simpsons, I think, and that makes the episodes feel more sprawling and more ambitious than your average sitcom episode. But here they, they kind of throw in this subplot of, uh, of Barco and a karate school, which has nothing to do with anything. It's yeah. just kind of there. It's, it's, it's an excuse for them. 
I guess because they've got the marquee character, they've got the Bart character, and they need to use him somehow, you know? I think here they were still sort of juggling the, the whole concept of, is this the Bart Simpson show? Is this the Homer Simpson show? Like, what is this? You know, yeah. they, they still hadn't decided exactly what it was, right? I mean, I think here they were still sort of juggling with the concept of it being the Bart Simpson show. And occasionally they'll have some episodes that focus on Homer, but it's still the Bart Simpson show. And I think that transformation began to happen in this season, where, like, it really starts to become the Homer Simpson show. Yeah, and a lot of that's because they want to have adult plots and they want to have kid plots and they don't really know how to balance it out because the audience at the time was still a majority youth. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, it was not a show aimed at kids, but kids were still primarily the ones who were watching. I mean, I, mean, I was the target yeah. audience at the time. and I, I watched more of this and Married Children than anything else on there. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's family viewing because, I mean, when I watched this, by the time the third season came around, yeah, it would be the family thing. You know, of course, I'd be sitting down like with my dad and whatever to watch it on, on Thursday night. It was normal family viewing, you know, but um, but it was although its target audience was it was a family show, but it was sort of trying to skew towards adults with its humor. But they knew that they had a huge audience of kids and Bart was supposed to be the character that appealed to them. And so they always need to exploit him somehow. That's why he like shows up in all the video games and all the other stuff, you know. So uh, it took them a while to realize that they could just make it the Homer Simpson show, and it would work, and nobody would care. And in fact, people would prefer it that way. But yeah, it's it it is uh, the 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 sort of tug of war that uh, that that they played on with with the Simpsons, where they have they they're still trying to figure it out, right? So you you have to have the the Bart plot, you have to have the Homer plot, all that, and sort of to try to make it work. And so, yeah, that's, I guess that makes it feel kind of lopsided, but it is kind of, it, it is kind of interesting. Now going back to, to the, the whole left-handed store thing, how, how many people in Springfield actually turn out to be left-handed? It's like, it's a huge population. I know it's pretty convenient for something that never gets brought up again. There, there's a lot, there's all those scenes where like Homer runs into someone and like, and sees that they're complaining about, you know, the fact that, oh, stupid right-handed, whatever. And, you know, he's always, he never quite, like, is able to tell them about the store, right? I, he's about to do it and something interrupts him, or he just changed, he decides not to do it just because he's like a dick. But, yeah, a lot of people are left-handed in, in yeah. Springfield. So, well, so what else can we say about this episode? Let's see. I like bringing up the history of the show, like, when it was happening in time. So, October 3rd, 1991. So, right around this time is when the Soviet Union was dissolving. Literally well, yes. two yes, weeks before true. this. That's a good point. That's something that would have been, you know, dinner table conversations going on at that time. Um, and you're right. It was happening right around this time because before the end of 1990, before the end of the year, the Soviet Union had dissolved. Like that, that I remember clearly. Yeah. I remember that very clearly. And it was, it was what everybody's talking about. And I especially remember that for New Year's Eve for 92, right? It was yeah. the New Year's Eve that went from 91 to 92. I watched the the New Year's Eve special that I think aired on Fox, the one that aired on Fox, which was hosted by Penn and & Teller. And it had a bunch of, you know, things. Guns N' Roses did a performance, and uh, Sam Kinison did a set, right? And so when Sam Kinison did his set, which, of course, was, you know, 
it was clean for for uh, network TV. But at one point, he did this whole bit about the fact that there's no more Russia. There's no more Russia. You know, like uh, the way he said it in his set, right? And I'm going like, no, no, there's no more Soviet Union, but Russia still exists. The country itself still exists. Like, like get it right, Sam Kinison. You know what's even that, crazier? <laughs> what? Since this aired on a Thursday, that Tuesday, so the same week uh, on that Tuesday, Yugoslavia disbanded, well, dissolved. Okay, wow. So so basically, this aired the week that that was going on. Yeah. So I'm sure it was the last, like, probably, did this even get good ratings? It, probably, uh, it was I mean, number one show that week on Fox. Oh, yeah, okay. So it was, I, I, this, is, this was probably back when, yeah, this is back when, like, The Simpsons was going to consistently be the number one show on Fox for the week that it aired. So, yeah. uh, so I think that that, that much is, is certain, but, uh, but yeah, that's, that's, that is wild, man, that that was happening at that time. The it's fact that old. it, uh, well, yeah, to some degree it does. I mean, uh, I'm older than you are by a, by a few years. Cause I was, I, I was what, 13, 14, something like that. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's crazy. It's 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 really crazy that that's what was going on at that time. Yeah. And here's okay. what was opening in theaters that week. So the week this show this episode came out, the following you would catch as a new release in the theaters: Ricochet, starring uh, Mike Flynn's favorite director Russell Mulcahy. <laughs> um, Ricochet. You know, I wanted to see that. I remember, like, I ended up watching it. You know, months later on video, but but um, I wa I remember want really wanting to see that movie. The, the trailers uh, that were on TV all the time, the TV uh, spots. And uh, there's this uh, electronic store uh, near where I was living at the time in New York and called J&R Music World. And they had like the, the video section. You, you'd go down there and in that section, they, they sold video games, they sold, you know, different things. And they had these, they had TV sets uh, that would play like, uh, cause they also had like a video store there where you could rent videos. And so they always had like TV sets that were playing EPKs. And I would go and hang out there all the time. So I like, you know, because they had like Genesis and, and Super Nintendo machines set up that you could like play on. Right. So I would go there. It was like my arcade. And they would I would always be seeing like on a constant loop, the EPK for Ricochet. So it was a movie I was really like looking forward to. And for whatever reason, I didn't go see it when it opened. So that's weird to me, like, because that's totally a movie that I would have gone to see. I really wanted to see that movie in theaters. I remember that. It was, it was like the one I was really looking forward to. Just really, you know, I like Denzel Washington, like Ice T. Like, so it wasn't a particularly eventful week outside of the fact, you know, in in terms of of, um, I mean, it was a very eventful week. But in terms of like pop culture and movies, no, it was not. Uh, in in terms of um, of what was actually going on in the world, it was huge. It was a huge week. It was a huge uh, period. Here's what had already been in theaters during this time: Necessary oh. Roughness. Ah, yes. Yes, necessary roughness with uh, with Scott Bakula. Yeah. Yes, yes. I, I I like that movie. I haven't seen it in a long time, but I like that movie. The Sinbad's King. in it too, right? Yep, Sinbad is. The Fisher King was also playing. It, it's interesting to think that like the Fisher King was a hit movie. Yeah, it was one of Gillen's biggest hits. Yeah, I, I I don't know that a movie like that would be a hit movie today. No, people are too stupid now. It's interesting to consider that you have like a movie like that, which um is is very complex and and it's a very quirky interesting movie but it is you know by terry gilliam standards it's an extremely mainstream film it's interesting to me that we don't really get movies like that to be hits 
it's just tent poles now, you know, <laughs> or, or a movie like that would end up on Netflix today, right? It would be like, it would be like, a, it would just end up on a, on Netflix or Amazon or something like that. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking at all these movies that would open around then. So all that would have been playing like first run theaters. My ass would have been stuck in a dollar theater watching Doc Hollywood for the third time because I had uh, family <laughs> members who thought they're pissing everywhere. <laughs> Michael G. Fox is pit- why is he shaking? Don't pay attention to that. He's pissing everywhere. <laughs> that you know what? That's a little bit, that right. It was on the set of Doc Hollywood that Michael J. Fox first noticed his condition, correct? But it's not noticeable in the movie, is it? I mean, it's not like no, that's a joke. The noticeable yeah. thing is that I think it was like a PG or PG thirteen movie, and there's a boot. Well, it's not total boo, but it's probably the last PG PG thirteen movie with like nudity in it. Yeah, I mean, because I, you know what, there was a movie I saw, well, that's not, it wouldn't be that recently now, it would have been maybe about a year or two ago that I revisited, right? And it's from the 80s, The Bride, right? The Bride with Sting. Oh, yeah, 85, uh, Jennifer Bill, Sting. Yeah, yeah. And you've got, the, and that movie's rated PG, okay? That movie's rated PG. I think it's, maybe it's PG, it's probably PG-13. Yeah. But, uh, but it's like, but it's got full frontal, full frontal nudity for Jennifer Beals. It's got, like, graphic impalement, when, uh, 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 God, what's the actor's name? Um, David Rappaport. There you go. Uh, yeah, when he gets, like, thrown against something, he gets impaled. Uh, and, like, it's graphic. And, like, like and, and yeah, Sting, you know, when he takes a dive off the, off the tower at the end of the, at the end of the thing and, and, like, plummets to his death and it's, like, all bloody. And I'm going, like, this movie was rated, this is, this is R-rated violence in a PG-13 movie. And it, it makes you wonder, like, how they they used to like balance that out who made these decisions because you look at movies that were rated pg-13 and around the same period other movies that were rated r and you kind of like like dark man okay dark man is an r-rated movie yeah but the violence in dark man is not all that it's not that much more graphic than the violence in batman no i mean it really isn't you know, but Batman gets a PG-13 and Darkman gets an R. And, and so you wonder, like, what like what happens there? Like, why that happens? You agree with me, right? That, like, the, the actual violence that we see in Darkman is not, you know, I, I, I don't recall it being particularly, it's not that much more graphic than the violence in, in a PG-13 movie from the same period. No, it's how you show it and, like, how it hits and how it feels. Yeah, I guess... I do think that these that these things about ratings are are arbitrary, though. I think that like they're arbitrary decisions made by the MPAA and whatever else, right? To um, because it really and I think it it continues to go on today. Like I don't know, um, you know, it's it's a different. It's not the MPAA anymore, right? It's just the MPA now. I hate that shit. Oh. Which I don't. I mean, I don't even know what the difference is, but like I do know that it's now just. It's the Motion Picture Association because saying the Motion Picture Association of America does not sound internationally friendly. I'm like, no, because they have their own rating boards, idiot. What any of this has to do with The Simpsons, I don't know, but we we really went off on a lot of tangents. So what's our final word on uh, When Flanders Failed? It's the last gasp of an older style of writing that was on its way out. And this is literally... This where you could see the need for a sea change in the writing team. Yeah, I pretty much agree. I mean, I think uh, I think that again, this is we're we're early in season three. We're st- it's still sort of getting there. 
the episode in and of itself is entertaining and fun to watch. There's good gags in it. It builds to its maudlin ending. Um, you know, if you if you allow yourself to get sucked in, it will work on that level. But we're still not looking at a classic episode here. We're still not looking at anything particularly um, groundbreaking or transcendent or even that classic. Like I didn't think this episode doesn't show up on any top 10 lists, does it? I mean, it's, uh, it's not... There's a few here and there. Most of the people give the credit this season to Mr. Plow, which I think is another lame episode. But it's also John Vitti. Same guy wrote this, wrote Mr. Plow. I, that's another episode where I don't understand the fandom for it. It's, it's okay. No, season four. So it was his last uh, episode in season four. Mr. Plow has a lot of funny gags. Maybe that's why. You know, and it's got uh, Linda Ronstadt or whatever. Like, it, it has funny gags, and that, that might be why. But when ranking... It's funny, because when I watch the episodes, like, I go through them. Like, I look them up on Wikipedia and just sort of go through a little bit of, like, just reception and whatever, just to see sort of what the reactions were. And... It's funny because like it's like every other episode, uh, at least so far, right in the first handful of seasons, it's like almost every other episode will say there, uh, Bill Oakley or whatever. Uh, when when the show went to Disney Plus, Bill Oakley recommended this episode as one of the ones to watch. And I'm going like that's every other fucking episode. I mean, yeah. Bill Oakley. Why don't you just say, yeah, watch the first ten seasons. Just say that like up front, and then that's it. Okay, so we're still sort of in the in the last gasp. And when you when you told me that this is a holdover from season two, uh, then then it sort of clicked for me. I said, yeah, it feels like a season two episode. It feels, and I think it's weird they threw it in there. I mean, even the Michael Jackson episode was technically a season two episode. It was produced during the season two production run. Oh yeah. So so I mean, I'm guessing the first handful of episodes in season three are technically season two episodes. The worm has turned, is it not, my tin-plated friend? Look at you, you who were once so proud. Feel the wrath of the left hand of Burns. Huzzah for the shopkeep! Huzzah! Homer, affordable track housing made us neighbors, but you made us friends. To Ned Flanders, the richest left-handed man in town. So that's it for this week's installment of The Simpsons Countdown. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this, consider showing your support. It's really very simple. Give us a like or a favorable rating. This podcast is available on Apple, Spotify, Anchor FM, and other podcasting platforms. So adding a brief review, if possible, might actually help boost the podcast's profile. And if it isn't too much trouble, please do share this with all your friends on social media. Speaking of social media, you can follow the Eric's Antoine Network on Facebook or subscribe to it on YouTube. You can also follow me on Twitter at Eric's Antoine Net, and feel free to find me and follow me on Letterboxd, where I frequently post film reviews you may or may not agree with. Also, don't forget to seek out AndersonVision.com for all your pop culture news, reviews, and other cool stuff. I'll be providing a link to Troy's website in the episode description. I'm Eric Antoine. I'll be back next week when Jason Pollock and I will be discussing Bart the Murderer, in which Bart falls in with Fat Tony and the rest of Springfield's Italian mafia community, and Principal Skinner mysteriously disappears. Season 3 at last starts springing to life, and I hope you'll join us. In the meantime, stay safe out there, 
See you next week. Now, now the Soviets themselves may, in a limited way, be coming to understand the importance of freedom. We hear much from Moscow. Shh.